You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come Hi everybody, this is Danny Anderson welcoming you again to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I of course work and teach English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. Uh, and today I'm joined by two old friends of the show, um, Jay Eldred and Jordan Poss, um, both of which are coming to us via Skype. Um, and I, I gotta say, I'm a little frustrated with you guys because I was all prepared to uh, whine about having to pump my basement out. We got a little extra rain up here in Pennsylvania <laughs> the last weekend. And uh, so I had, you know, a little bit of water I had to pump out with a, with a carpet cleaner. And, uh, and I was really complaining. I was hoping to complain. And then you guys had to have a hurricane. So, um, Jay, yeah, especially. I, I yeah. think I got you beat on that one. Yeah. Why don't For you sure. tell us how you guys are doing, first of all? Well, I'm I'm doing okay. Um, by the time this drops, probably most of you would have heard of New Bern, North Carolina, thanks to the extensive coverage on most of your news networks or the Weather Channel. That's where I would normally live, and my wife and I evacuated, let's see, this would be three, four days ago. We're recording on a Friday. We left on Tuesday for Greenville, South Carolina, which happens to be near where Jordan is, so we had lunch this afternoon. But I'm staying with my brother down there, and... We're here for the foreseeable future till they let us back in. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're all praying for you, man. And uh, yeah, we're really happy you got out and that you're going to, you're going to be at least safe here. So we hope everything's okay for you when you get back home. Um, mm-hmm. Thank and, you. And you're both going to get some rain um, in the near future from this. So Greenville's probably not out of the woods, right, Jordan? Oh no, by, by no means. We're, what we were talking about before the show and also over lunch, cause it's all either of us can really think about, but uh, I think Greenville uh, it, it, I've seen estimates of up to like eight, eight inches possible, maybe, maybe even more. And of course it depends on which part of the area you're in. And of course I commute to Greenwood, which is a little over an hour away in a slightly different part of the Piedmont. And it's, it's going to get rain too. And there, you know, I also do go to a satellite campus and it's going to get its own kind of rain and it's, it's a mess. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's small potatoes compared to what's going on in New Bern, but, um, still a lot to worry about. Yeah, yeah. So, well, everyone's praying for you, and uh, we're really happy that you're, you're safe uh, and, uh, and we'll be here for the foreseeable future here. So, um, um, I really am grateful that you both agreed to be on the show in the midst of all this. Uh, Jay said it actually helps take your mind off things, right? But um, yep. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy that, that I can help, I suppose, in my small way. Uh, but uh, I, also, this is a show I've been wanting to get to for a long time. Um, Philip Rutledge, excuse me, one of our listeners, uh, contacted me on the show's Facebook page a long time ago, like back in March or something, to uh, uh, request a show about the John Birch Society. Um, Philip obviously knows this show very well because this is a topic that fits in very nicely with a lot of what we do. We we talk about politics a lot. We talk about um, conspiracy theories a lot. And John Birch Society helps us do both (laughs) quite quite easily, right? Um, It's a weird show. I was just thinking about this as the... Blind Revelators 
uh, were singing to us at the beginning of the episode. The uh, we you know a couple of weeks ago I'm defending Alex Jones, and then <laughs> then this last episode I'm trashing Elon Musk for trying to save humanity. And so I don't really know what what I'm doing on this show sometimes, but I think we can all agree that the Birch Society is a bad thing. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think we could. I think we could also agree that you are fostering discussion. Well, that's, that's real. the whole yeah. point, right? <laughs> that is the whole. That's why I do this for free. Like I said, um, yeah, you, uh, this is great conversations with interesting people, uh, and I get to learn a lot, and I hope the audience does too. Uh, like Philip, thank you, Philip. Uh, first of all, Rutledge for uh, suggesting the show. Uh, be like Philip. Uh, go to a Facebook page. Like the sh- like the Facebook page. Talk back at us. Jordan and I got a lot of nice pushback on the Alex Jones episode actually recently. I appreciate that from the listeners there. Um, go to iTunes and all that kind of stuff. You know, you know the routine by now, but uh, engage with the show. And not only I think will you enjoy it more as a listener, but uh, other people will find it then and uh, be able to enjoy it along with you. So let's, uh, let's jump right in this. Let's forget the rain on my pathetic you know eight inches of water i had in my basement which was not even that much really but um so uh and uh and go on to uh the the birch society so um let's start with a little bit of background and history about it um jordan um i know that you said you had quite a lot to say about its um its sort of development and, and its kind of place in conservative politics especially in america well, I don't know how I don't know that I have a lot to say about it, but the most that I know about the John Birch Society, I know like this. And um, in a way, I, I knew a little bit of the story prior to this um, prior to this topic coming up and us beginning to like talk about it. What like a couple months ago, mm-hmm. trying to to work this out. Uh, and I also knew a lot about um, you know, especially because c- c- if you spend any amount of time looking around like national review, which I, I, I subscribed to for a couple of years, several years ago. Um, there, you know, William F. Buckley's feud with the John Birch society is going to come up at some point. And it has come up again in the last few years, you know, for, for this kind of trend of, you know, wh- what is the conservative movement to make out of the kind of weird paranoia and the kinds of weird, weird elements of what we can kind of call conservative ism <laughs> that's been kind of, I, I don't want to call it conservatism, but you know, what do you do with these weird paranoid elements that emerge every so often? And, um, we could probably talk about the differences between the 1950s and sixties and now just in terms of simple media, um, and the kind of gatekeeping that being the editor of a magazine couldn't allow as opposed to have, you know, an age in which Twitter exists. Sure. Yeah. But, um, in a way, I honestly think the story of the actual John Birch is more interesting and more weird than anything the John Birch Society could have come up with. Yeah, I guess I should is, have introduced that. John Birch has nothing to do with the John Birch Society. Um, yeah, it yeah. was founded by a guy named Robert Welch, right? Who right. there was this person named John Birch who uh, died fighting communists in China or something like that. Right. Kind of sort of, yeah, kind of sort of. So, so I mean, and that, that kind of goes back to what stuff that we've been talking about for a couple of years on the show, which is the way that like reality is so much weirder and more complicated and more interesting. The conspiracy theories that like, why would anybody go the conspiracy route? So I guess to back up and start with Birch himself, he is the, and, and, and you know, you talk about politics and conspiracy theories. Another element of the sectarian review we can bring in here is religion. Oh yeah, because uh, Birch's parents are Baptist missionaries, I believe, in India. Uh, so he's born there. Uh, I think he goes to Bible school in the United States and then goes back as a Baptist missionary to China. And so he's in uh, China in the 1930s and the early 1940s. 
uh, this is and just to give a little bit of a refresher, like the Chinese situation in World War II is really interesting and complicated and does not get enough attention from Americans. Um, I mean, the easy, the easy topics for Americans are like, you know, Iwo Jima, D-Day, the atomic bomb. Uh, you know, we had a very tight alliance with the Chinese for a long time. And uh, this, of course, is pre-Mao. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mao's out there, but he's not in control. So China at the time is, you know, split, you know, riff, riven by civil war. Uh, there's the Kuomintang, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government that's in charge. Um, there are the Reds under Mao who are kind of, you know, fighting extensive guerrilla warfare, especially in the highlands. Um, and then, of course, in the 1930s, the Chinese and excuse me, the Japanese invade. So China is, you know, just in turmoil as it has been for a good 50 years by this point. Uh, so Birch has his work cut out for him. And of course, he's also trying to minister to the very large pre-existing Chinese Christian community that's there and win converts and avoid the Japanese and avoid the communists, right? Uh, so it's really strange and interesting. Uh, where it gets really strange and where the communist element starts to play more of a role is in a completely accidental meeting that he has. In, uh, so after Pearl Harbor, which Jay and I were talking about over lunch, uh, after Pearl Harbor, you know, kind of as a, I don't want to just call it a publicity stunt, but as kind of a morale boost, right? There's the famous Doolittle Raid on Tokyo where, uh, you know, a small number of Mitchell bombers are launched from a uh, aircraft carrier that's gone under radar silence really far out into the middle of the ocean, into the Pacific to get just within striking range of Tokyo, launch these bombers and then just head home. And, you know, the idea was at least we'll have struck a blow against the Japanese in their own islands. Uh, even though these bomber crews are going to have to pray they have enough fuel to make it to China and then ditch. Right. Um, which is exactly what happens. And Jimmy Doolittle, the commander of the mission, uh, after he and his crew ditch in China, are looking for help and run into Robert, uh, excuse me, John Birch. Mm. Um, uh, Birch impresses Doolittle. Uh, they actually spend a lot of time together, apparently. Um, and Birch has the virtue of a good missionary in knowing the people and the area, mm-hmm. right? So he's actually got pre existing networks. So Doolittle, in his capacity as an American, officer kind of working with the Chinese for a little while uh, recommends Birch, yeah, Birch as a uh, possible source of intelligence to a guy named Claire Chenault, who is the commander of the Flying Tigers, uh, which is a group of uh, um, not to get too far out in the weeds in this because this is this is this is my my bag right here. Uh, the Flying Tigers are a volunteer force of American pilots who volunteer, you know, during America's neutrality in the 1930s and early 40s. Uh, these guys volunteer to help the Chinese fight the Japanese. Um, so they, they go over and form kind of a rump American Air Force flying for the Chinese. And Chenault is in command. And Chenault is a devout Christian, so he and Birch mesh really well. Birch likes working for him. And what he essentially does is kind of um, use his connections, use his ability to travel through the countryside uh, unobtrusively because he's been there for so long. Um, and, you know, kind of take secondhand information on Japanese movements and, you know, kind of funnel them back to Chenault who gets them to American intelligence. And that helps kind of inform the allies of what the Japanese are up to in that particular block of China, all of which I think is just fascinating. Yeah. Right. Um, it sounds it like a changes. Great movie. <laughs> Sorry. It sounds like it'd be a great movie actually. So. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. If, if Birch's name hadn't been tainted, right. <laughs> which is where we're heading with this. Yeah. 
So uh, Birch is not actually totally happy with the direction his career in intelligence takes because Chenault at some point has to kind of second him to the OSS, which if you're familiar with the history of the CIA is kind of the World War II era forerunner, right? They, um, you know, there were, there were numerous different intelligence agencies within the military establishment and also the, the federal government, the OSS or the Office of Strategic Services. Um, was created to kind of funnel all of this intel gathering into sort of one organization to streamline it for efficiency's sake. Um, and so they had offices all over the world. They operated in Burma. Uh, famously, they operated in Europe, which I happened to write a novel about. Um, and they, uh, you know, their intelligence gathering, their special operations, they do all this kinds of stuff. Uh, actually, now that I think about it, uh, another OSS operative in China at the time is Julia Child. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. So they've, They've got all kinds of weird people working for them. It's fascinating. Um, Birch does not like working for the OSS. Uh, he's apparently not super comfortable working in Intel anyway. But as long as he's doing it with Chenault, a man he likes and respects, he's kind of okay with it. Uh, getting kind of booted to the OSS, which is a much kind of – a little bit more of a, a kind of distant and icy cold organization. He's not really comfortable with it. Um Fast forward to the end of the war and um, VJ Day, the surrender of Japan is, you know, August 1945. Um, That ends the war. But of course, that does not immediately remove Japanese troops from China. So there's all kinds of stuff that still has to be resolved. And and, um, the story of what happened in places like Germany and China and Japan immediately after the war is another aspect of the war that I think needs more attention because it's it continues to be awful long after the the guns start uh, stop shooting. So Birch is actually traveling with a mixed unit of Americans, uh, actually some Koreans, uh, a a mixed party of Americans, uh, Koreans, and also soldiers of Chang's Chinese Chinese Nationalist Army uh, through a part of uh, China that he's familiar with when they are stopped by some kind of small force of Maoist communist rebels. Uh, so I mean this is. Uh, kind of and and the john birch society is going to make great hay of this but this is absolutely in keeping with kind of the duplicity of the soviets in europe and the chinese communists as well and even you know Ho's communists in uh, uh vietnam at the same time but uh actually fighting like two wars simultaneously there's the war against the japanese and there's the war against you know ostensibly that you know people who should ostensibly be their friends which is other chinese people um i haven't been able with the amount of digging that i've done i'm sure i could find better sources out there somewhere but uh as far as i can tell it's not totally clear what happens but when birch and his group run into this group of maoists they uh, they they think that they have captured some chinese nationalists and try to force them to disarm uh, and as we all know, you don't try to disarm an American. Uh, so he actually there's some there's some sort of tussle over his sidearm. I think he's carrying a, like a 45, uh, maybe even a revolver. Um, there's some sort of tussle because uh, he just refuses to cooperate, and uh, the Chinese communists kill him. Mm. Uh, the rest of his party are taken prisoner, and when they're finally released, they report back on what happened. And again, this is 10 days after the end of the war, right? So what eventually happens. This is where we can, you know, I'll, I'll give up the mic because I'm monologuing. Uh, what eventually happens when the John Birch Society is founded is that Welch pulls the name John Birch. And I'm not even I, I'm honestly not even sure where he ran across it. Somehow it just stuck in his mind. Uh, 
but uh, pulls the name John Birch out and they use his name and their explanation for it that I believe they still use on their website. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I saw that recently. They call him the first martyr of or the first casualty or the first martyr to World War Three or to the communists, um, which is. Uh, you can see where the logic there is, but it's questionable and uh, it's, they they use his name for questionable purposes. Um, the final word I'll say on this, uh, I actually ran across this in um, a Google Books edition of Jimmy Doolittle's autobiography, a book called uh, – hang on. Uh, I would never be so lucky again, or I could never be so lucky again. Uh, Doolittle, who was acquainted with Birch a little bit, right, and actually helped establish Birch's intelligence contacts with the U.S. military, uh, said that he was killed uh, by Chinese communists 10 days after the war was officially over. Uh, he had no way of knowing, right, that the John Birch Society, a highly vocal post-war anti-communist organization, which was active at the time Doolittle wrote this book, uh, would be named after him because its founders believed him to be the, quote, first casualty of World War III. I feel sure he would not have approved, <laughs> which, uh, again, based on Birch's own priorities, I would tend to agree with. Um, that's that's who John Birch was. What do y'all, what do y'all got? Yeah, that that's great um, background there because it, it's really interesting that this very organization that takes its name – from this man, that whole that activity is actually kind of a revisionist idealism of, of yeah. somebody to suit a, a very immediate political agenda, right? And, and right. so, um, it's a really interesting um, way to begin an organization. Let me just say that. And so, uh, yeah. when we're talking about the John Birch Society, we are not talking about the man John Birch, right? Who probably would not have uh, appreciated being associated with this. Um, right. A, a Baptist missionary to a faraway country who reluctantly helped feed information to the allies, as opposed to, you know, some sort of stalwart McCarthyite, you know, I mean, yeah. And it, it gets, I'm sorry, I said I would stop. One other thought that I have, though, is that, it's, you know, the way we talk about McCarthyism now, especially like the be the best take I've ever heard on it actually comes from the movie A Beautiful Mind. OK, where Ed Harris, Ed Harris's character, the imaginary CIA agent, says that McCarthy is an idiot. Unfortunately, that doesn't make him wrong. <laughs> like just like John Birch. Right. The communism was a threat at the time. And there were actually communist agents in the federal government. Um what the Birch Society did with that, though, uh, is actually reduce – I mean take a legitimate concern and get so hysterical with it that it reduces it to a cartoon and you can't seriously discuss it, which um, now that I think about it is actually a very relevant topic again, right? For, Serious yeah. concerns, cartoonish treatment. Sure. Uh, Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thus Twitter, yes. Yes. <laughs> Jay, why don't you chime in here? Um, like yeah. uh, on the sort of history background uh, of the society itself. Do you want to pick up the story anywhere? Well, I wish that I could. Unfortunately, all of my notes are back home and <laughs> I really can't remember a whole lot about it. So I really, I'm kind of unsure why I'm even on this call other than I'm scheduled to be here. I know that when it comes time to talking about like modern connections and modern conspiracy theories, I can handle a bit of that. But as far as history goes, yeah, I'm out of the loop. Sorry. Okay, no problem. We'll bring you in uh, here in a little bit then. Um, so the society itself, like I kind of the first, the only, the first 
time I heard the term was in that, was it Charlie Daniels song, Uneasy yeah. Rider? <laughs> and, and he sort of drops the name to try and get the uh, local rednecks to not kill him. Or what something. does he call himself? A faithful follower of Brother, Brother John Burke or Brother something? Brother John Burke, yeah. So that's uh, that's sort of the first time I'd heard the name. So by then, if it's if it's used in parody, it's already kind of a joke, right? Um, mm-hmm. not, although it's not a joke. Um, this is a society that has a lot of like, you know, pull in certain ways within a burgeoning form of anti-communist conservatism. And so much so that people like William F. Buckley have to overtly, like basically kick them out of the tribe for what he's, as he defines conservatism, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, what, what about that part of the situation there, Jordan? I'll try to be a little briefer. And, and again, I think Birch's own life is actually in some ways more interesting than more interesting and complicated than the kind of political struggles that the use of his name spawned. So like the Birch Society is founded in the 1950s. They rat- uh, very rapidly get a pretty large nationwide following. And I think um, maybe this is a stupid comparison, but they, they almost strike me as like a political Gideon's organization. Oh, I see. Because yeah. it is – because it's primarily made up of business, like kind of middle class small businessmen who recruit other small businessmen. So, I mean, they're get you you that that should give you also an idea of the kinds of concerns the Birch Society will have. Um, things that are going to interfere with our personal freedom, family life, and of course, uh, religious and especially political liberty right and and the politics definitely takes the front seat there um it's it's heyday is kind of in the oh sorry i was gonna ask so pretty much they would be defending what we might see online today certain uh right right leaning people call quote real americans yeah 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 yeah, definitely and the, the interesting thing is that when you look through bircher literature and um I you know for this I could, I was actually not aware that the Burke, John Birch Society is still around until relatively recently. Right. Uh, so I mean I I sought out you know like YouTube interviews with like the president and stuff like that and it's striking. The the best thing I can compare it to is if you're like working in a public place like in a cafe or a you know a a fast food restaurant or something and you know some other person who's alone sits down at the next table and they strike up a conversation with you it's like you find some common ground and everything's great until they drop like one reference to the gold standard. Yeah. (laughs) And then you don't really respond to it. And there's another one. And then pretty soon the whole conversation is about the fed and the creature from Jekyll Island. And you know, yeah, not not to offend either one of you, but it's like when a normie like myself um, runs across a civil war reenactor, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know the, yeah, yeah, the guys yeah. are into that stuff, but um, right. uh, you're the normals. You're, you're you're not you're not the crazy fringe guy, right? But yeah, you you know you know exactly where your next forty five minutes are going to go, right? So. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and if you watch interviews with Birchers, I mean, it's very much like that. It's like seventy five percent of it is completely reasonable, like conservative ish, libertarian ish politics, and then they get on you know the secret society that is actually controlling all of world politics and trying to mm. move us toward a, a one world government and, and all of this kind of stuff, like, you know, like stuff that was in the air. I breathed just as a kid kind of being in, you know, kind of rural, you know, conservative religious, you know, Bible belt, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, just the idea that, you know, there is this e pluribus, uh, not e pluribus unum, you know, the new world order, that whole thing, you know, um, that kind of, of paranoia, um, which, 
yeah. So, so to back up again, the heyday of the John Birch Society is in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, and they get into all kinds of stuff. And Welch actually approaches Buckley, uh, William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review. Um, and I can't remember exactly what their early interactions are, but they're not unfriendly. But gradually, Welch accumulates such a following and such a – I hate this cliche – but such a voice in, in this movement that uh, Buckley and some of his cohorts um, start getting a little bit concerned. And um, the, the, I think what the straw that finally breaks the camel's back because the Birchers – Again, say a lot of completely legitimate political stuff, but then they'll also talk about the communist plot to poison your children with fluoride. Uh, yeah, the fluoride the stuff right. has its, uh, its its beginnings in here, right? Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, so I know we had in the show notes at some point to talk about talk about Doctor Strangelove, but General <laughs> Ripper in Doctor Strangelove is a parody of a Bircher. I mean, that's the whole point of his character. Um, the straw that breaks the camel's back at least as far as Buckley is concerned, is when the Birchers go after, I think it's at this point, former President Eisenhower. Yeah. And uh, try to actually make the case that Eisenhower, who we, of course, it should have been obvious at the time, but we now know for sure is like a really dedicated Cold Warrior. Um, try to make the case that President Eisenhower is somehow actually a communist agent as well, yeah. who is actively trying to undermine the country from the Oval Office. Um, that's just too crazy and too paranoid. It, it's, it's beyond the pale. So, uh, Buckley who, um, is pretty open minded. Um, what's, what's missed is that Buckley, you know, uh, is actually kind of crafting what we now call conservatism is, is a coalition all, all along. And so, I mean, he's got people writing for national review who disagree with him on a lot of stuff like Russell Kirk, who's, um, more of my homeboy now. He's more of like the Edmund Burke type conservative as, as opposed to the kind of, you know, free markets, libertarianism, you know, ex, you know, maximal liberty kind of uh, uh, conservative that Buckley is. Um, within this coalition, though, you've got to kind of choose what varieties of crazy you'll tolerate. Right? And uh, anyway, the Birchers uh, set themselves beyond the pale by attacking Ike and uh, also really pushing some of these, you know, high level communist conspiracies, uh, which, which you know, some of some of which are legitimate. Again, National Review does not uh, National Review and Buckley don't shrink from the anti-communist sure. uh, fight. Uh, Whitaker Chambers writes for National Review, right? The guy who outed Alger Hiss as a common, communist agent and uh, also wrote a really fabulous review of uh, Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> oh, by the way, which is it's a wonderful takedown of Ayn Rand. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this, this is not like, you know, Buckley is uncomfortable with anti-communist rhetoric or something. It's that the Birchers are getting crazy. Yeah. So uh, I think all of this really kind of goes down during the 64 election when Goldwater is going up against LBJ. Yeah. And uh, Goldwater has enough problems with bad press anyway, um, <laughs> which we, you know, if you want to talk about media bias. Um, but one of the things they want to do is distance Goldwater from the Birchers because the Birchers are – starting to look not just a little bit off but actively bad uh so buckley um i can't remember if he dedicates a whole issue of his magazine to this or simply writes a pretty long and scathing editorial uh but they actually coordinate and plan a kind of media attack on the john birch society uh 
it occurs to me now that it's not totally dissimilar to what you know Google and Facebook and all them did to Alex Jones. Mm. Um, you know, mm. coordinate behind the scenes a little bit, give <laughs> give them a little bit of justified paranoia that people are out to get you, and uh, then denounce them. Right. So uh, that's kind of the high watermark of the John Birch Society, and uh, it's kind of comical if you visit the John Birch Society website. They are still fighting this battle. Yeah, um, oh. they have. I, I think I said in the show notes they. You can bleep this if you want. I don't know if it's if, if it should go on the air or not, but I think I typed in the show notes that the John Birch Society has a wonderfully bitchy FAQ about <laughs> William F. Buckley um, and and that whole conflict back then. Um, I mean, it's 50, 50 something years ago, and, and I mean they are it's 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 a live memory for them. It's interesting. Um, well, that. But- uh, Anyway, Buckley kind of gets credit for sort of ousting the Birchers from sort of the normative, putting them definitively outside conservative norms uh, insofar as he was able. And of course, Buckley's not the only person involved in this. He's kind of the useful, kind of the useful stand-in because he's one of the one of the leading voices in trying to shove the Birchers out of the way. Uh, but you know, and, and of course, there's also uh, leftist reactions to the Birchers pretty extensively as well. I think um, they might have been one of the groups Hofstadter, Richard Hofstadter had in mind talking about, you know, the paranoid mind uh, or the paranoid uh, style of America. Yeah. The paranoid style in American politics. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, the, I mean, on that note, then um, here's the thing that Welch actually wrote about Eisenhower quote, could Eisenhower really be a smart politician entirely without principles and hungry for glory, who is only the tool of the communists? The answer is yes. And so, I mean, that, that sounds like crazy person talk, right? And, and it sounds, I mean, especially when it's about Eisenhower, first of all. Right. But um, yeah, and the idea then that he becomes this sort of um, kind of like paranoid delusional form of, of you know, a legitimate kind of critique of communism. Okay. And, and honestly, I mean, partisan review, this is a, you know, kind of a lefty um, uh magazine that we get our name from here on the sectarian review uh they were anti-communist right this was a sort of an anti-communist left um agenda too so lots of people were anti-communist at the time that wasn't really a problem um it's just sort of the um the way that the birchers embodied this kind of like right-wing paranoia that and i think it's really interesting the way the parallel i i guess i want to at some point draw some parallels between the birch society and um and uh um and uh our modern moment and so are there sort of like patterns of uh behavior that we can see set for the tea party for example from a few years ago and certainly sort of the 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 QAnon trump voter yep. of today right you know what i mean these are sort of um and I'm, i specifically mean the QAnon, not just any trump voter there's a certain style of trump voter right mm-hmm. uh and so um yeah i, I feel like the that's what's so interesting to me about the John Birch Society is that uh, it is a moment of craziness. And I guess what I'm interested in now, this a little rambling preamble to this question, is when <laughs> folks like Buckley, if not him by himself, um, eschewed the Birch Society from, like, as you said, normative conservatism, what happens to the society after that? Does it really go crazy? Does it have, like, um, is, is it freed from any kind of polite constraints? And then this then makes me think about what we're doing with Alex Jones and by, by completely dismissing him from, uh, our, you know, normal talk. I mean, are we just sort of create, pushing him off into a space 
And we went over this in the last episode. We don't have to go over that again necessarily. But what <laughs> happened to the Birch Society, I guess, is my question. Jay? I'm sorry, I lost the train of the question. Yeah, I know. It was a bad question. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> I was formulating it as I was talking. And so so after um, Buckley gets rid of them from kind of nor- mainstream conservatism, in which they were kind of a part of, they were a strain of mainstream right. conservatism. Um, after that moment when he said, oh, they're too crazy because of Eisenhower or whatever, um, what happens to that group then in, in the aftermath? Does it become crazy, crazy, or uh, does it just become irrelevant and disappear? It obviously didn't. Like, what have oh. they been doing in the meantime? Again, I can't speak authoritatively because, first of all, I am not a member of the John Birch Society. <laughs> no. I am have not ever, and never have. Are, are you now or have you ever been a member of the John Birch Society? No. Um, and then second, as I said earlier, all of my research and, and my notes and stuff are, you know, 300 miles away, hopefully not being flooded out. But I would argue that yeah. when when yeah. he gets rid of them from mainstream conservatism, I would almost want to say that they they don't die off, first of all, because as Jordan's told us, you know, the organization is still around. Um, just looking at what normally happens with groups like that probably i would say they become crazier because you've you've eliminated any kind of conservative influence on them you know mm. um in a way it it feeds their paranoia because yes you know we, this is what we've been saying you know persecution complex like we've talked about several times before um then the internet comes around in the mid 90s and gives them a voice again you know what have you um, I'm more interested in talking about the QAnon good. aspect of things, though. Yeah, if mm-hmm. that's good, a good segue yeah. for it. Let me. Can I set that up for you and then let you go yeah. on with it? Go um, for it. So the the QAnon stuff. This is a, a a conspiracy theory of sorts that's unfolding before our eyes, actually, um, in the news. So there's a um, this. I, we should probably do an entire show just about this, but just the broad brushstrokes of it is there is this uh, messenger on 4chan um, who goes under just the word Q anon anonymous Q um, and <laughs> posting little hints to Trump supporters that he is actually purposefully infiltrating the deep state through the presidency and he's mm-hmm. purging the, our government of bad actors, right? And so Trump is on your side as true patriotic Americans. And he gives them little clues to look for uh, that are going to be coming out of the news. And so then Trump will make a gesture where three fingers are raised and they'll point back yeah. to some post on Q on the board. So this is what QAnon was talking about. <laughs> Everything's going to be great. And so, um, yeah. Uh, and so QAnon has then spun off into this whole mythology of itself, um, this kind of anti-deep state actor who's there right. to to kind of save the true American, um, as you guys put it before. So go ahead, uh, go ahead with that, Jay. Well, that's kind of, you know, the same setup that I was going to go with. Uh, I've heard it called not the deep state, but almost like the deeper state mm. or the <laughs> deepest state, you know, infiltrate from within and take it out. Um some of the, you know, it's interesting if you want to waste a good evening of your time is to go in and search up the different QAnon conspiracies. Um, but they definitely play into a certain right wing idea of American politics. You know, the idea that the Clintons and the Obamas are our enemies, um, sometimes even 
I don't even know how they spin this one, but sometimes even George W. Bush, you know, has <laughs> has betrayed the country, and somehow this anonymous actor is going to bring about their arrest for treason, and it's all going to end, you know, horribly for the enemies of America from within. Um, my interest, my my thought was that where did the Q come from? Is that like does that stand for a question? Did it is it from like Star Trek? I have no idea. I've, <laughs> I the, what I heard was you have, you have the character Q on Star Trek that is this omnipotent being, kind of controlling things from behind the scenes. Yeah, idea. I don't know. That was my or maybe it's actually. maybe it's just the guy who gives James Bond his equipment. <laughs> no, that's guy. That's the connections. That actually works as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's this whole uh, that, you know, to combine bumper stickers, it's as bad as you think and they are out to get you. <laughs> but but at the same t- but at the same time, the government has all the answers. You just have to trust the plan. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually feel like there's a liberal version of this right now with that ridiculous uh, New York Times op-ed by a, an anonymous Trump staffer yeah. mm-hmm. who's like, don't worry, the the wonks are really looking out for you. We're undermining him at every can. This is, and, and the sort of the liberals are going crazy, yay, yay about this. I'm like, A, that's, you don't want a government run that way, first of all. Um, but B, how right. is this any different than the QAnon stuff? Except this guy might actually be real, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess that's a major, I guess that's not an insignificant difference, but yeah. But then there's the wonderful conspiracy who Q acts. Like yeah. there, there's a group of people out there who think it's actually Donald Trump himself, <laughs> you know, and, and all of the ridiculousness that we see on TV is just an act to keep all of the, you know, all the haters focused elsewhere yeah. while he gets them out. Yeah, the, the whole 12th dimension chess thing yeah, that he's <laughs> yeah. doing. Yeah, the, the whole idea that Trump or that Trump and Mueller have some some sort of agreement and so as long as it looks as he's as if he's going after trump the democrats will leave him alone so he can take out the democratic leadership yeah they they see this culminating with hillary clinton being hauled away in handcuffs right i mean this is um the the q um and you and you see this at trump rallies and and not just clinton but but former president obama and nancy pelosi and you insert all of your democratic leadership over the last three decades here yeah yeah, I, I wonder, like psychologically, if I'm going to psychoanalyze, you know, vast majority of, or vast numbers of people here. Um, but if, <laughs> if this is sort of like a what you resort to at the moment, you realize that the militia movement, you're never really going to, they got nukes. They're not, we're not going to be able to overthrow the government. Right. And so you resort to these fantasies about white hat, deep state people um, saving the world for you. Like I, I sort of wonder if that's kind of, it's sort of a defeatism behind QAnon a little bit. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's just a, a thought that I've been you know toying with, but, um, and, and it does, I think relate a bit to the Birch society, right? The Birch society, mm-hmm. um, blames Eisenhower. There's a pattern of conspiratorial thought here where when you have this sort of purity standard for which what defines a true American, right? Right. Um, Once you're done kind of identifying all the external enemies, you start identifying internal enemies as well, right? And so that's where they kind of jump the shark to to use a, you know, a a TV trope um, to, uh, uh, to larger conservatism that's where they went too far is when you know geez eisenhower are you kidding me right and so um and and so there is this sense that not communists anymore but just generally 
people who are out to destroy the constitution kind of uh, are, are, are the new enemy. And that includes communists, of course, but it also includes um, people who are for the federal reserve and who support the UN and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And so um, it, it's the idea that once the old enemies are gone, it's necessary to create new ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's always got to be somebody that you kind of like totemically focus on as like, if you could just, you know, I mean, you saw this a little bit, you know, and of course, this is where Donald Trump came from, right? The whole birther movement. Sure. Uh, like, you know, the birth certificate was supposed to be this like magic bullet that could reverse Obamacare and undo all of the other damage, you know, and and like, like when you're like, I, I, I honestly think that maybe at least part of the proliferation of this kind of conspiracy theory has to do with the rise of movies because mm-hmm. yeah. movies movies have to be interesting. Right. And, you know, the idea of, you know, there being some kind of guy secreted away quietly and dramatically like undermining the enemy that that's that's made for Hollywood, but it's too simple for real life. Right. Um, I can hear my my own voice again. I distracting. The NSA is talking to you. They're planning ideas in your head and they're just (laughs) they're trying to distract you. Um, I'll I'll be right back. The kitchen is right here. I got to go get some tin foil. Yes, please do. Um, No, but But, uh, uh, I I can't remember where I was going with that. But 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 yeah, the uh, I mean, the simplistic looking for a simple magic bullet that will kill the one monster. Yeah that threatens you i mean i think that's a hallmark of conspiracy theories but of course they adapt to changing the in insofar as they are connected to reality they re- adapt and they are constantly finding new enemies yeah i mean in the way that i mean they created a fictional version of john birch himself to be the yes. figurehead of the society right uh right. And, and so you have to sort of retroactively define a person to fit your current obsession um and i, I think that's a really uh, just a fascinating aspect of their story frankly is that they were built on a fiction they're built on this idealist sort of fiction that is paranoid in its nature um and 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 i think that that's that's one of the more fascinating things i learned about as i do in my reading about this uh this this group i I, it's uh to me that's uh one of the lessons that maybe we can all learn i mean so think i don't mean to um you know make fun of uh you know there's a contemporary like fox kind of conservative um but who idolizes ronald reagan <laughs> into such a way that it's not even related to the actual ronald reagan anymore like they right. they put words and they ascribe it to reaganite conservatism right but it has mm-hmm. nothing it would not match him at all right and, and yeah. so right. yeah I, there's something i don't know what to make of that but there's something yeah it's, it's using people as kind of totems yeah. And it, it's more convenient if they're not around to contest the way you're using their name and their image. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, God knows what they're going to do with McCain. I mean, already it's begun. I mean, <laughs> you know, you have liberals making McCain their <laughs> their, mm-hmm. their new hero, right? And so it, it, God knows what they're going to do with him uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. And I actually saw some ridiculous article, I think, in the Daily Beast, which, you know, wouldn't surprise me if it's ridiculous then. But um, the uh, someone said, that who sh- who's going to stand in John McCain's shoes? It should be Meghan McCain because – she gave a great speech at his funeral and she's famous for being on a TV show. Right. And so she has a plan. I mean, that's, that's what we've devolved into is that the, the ridiculous Megan McCain is our new hero because of blood relationships, intelligent uh, uh, TV show appearances, but yeah, whatever. Um, yeah. So 
Um, another thing that kind of reminds me that this reminds me of the John Birch particular mindset is the chick tracks. Uh, we were, uh, we, we did a whole show about chick tracks and doesn't it feel very Bircher? <laughs> I, w- I was going to say that, that, that quote you read from Welch earlier, <laughs> like, could it be? Yes. Like that, that was, that was chick instruction like from the first to the last word i mean that that is exactly what i thought i can see the art that accompanies this i can see the yeah. drawing <laughs> there's a little devil white you know rolling his hands together in the background right and so eisenhower has dark circles around his eyes got to be a papist somewhere yeah yeah, yeah the pope's or involved with this want to say the word mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah um yeah so a lot of i mean obvious so am I making so the QAnon thing seems to work, right? Because the the Birch Society is crazy enough that the Q, QAnon thing seems to work. Does the Tea Party work um, as a a modern version of this? At least the Tea Party as it developed. I'm particularly thinking about the way that they kind of would don 1776 hats and and, and you know the tricorner hats and all that kind of thing. There seemed to be like a postmodern revision of real history to suit like an idealist version of, of what it should be today kind of uh, going on with that. And am I, I feel like I, that's what I think, but I feel like I'm open to being criticized on that assertion. I could, well, I'll, I'll do a little bit of critiquing. I, I think um, I, br- I brought in the fact that the John Burke society seemed primarily, at least in the, I think in the early days, it was primarily for like by, middle class small businessmen for middle class small businessmen yeah and the thing that middle class small businessmen want the most in the 1950s is respectability mm-hmm. right and to, i i think that's one reason you know to, to quote myself again like i think one reason the current jbs is so bitchy about buckley's takedown of them in the 1960s is that it it wounded that respectability that they wanted so much. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, cause I mean the, the one, you know, it's kind of like, uh, what it was the Martin Luther said. That's like the epigraph to screw tape letters. Like if you, if you can't make the devil yield to scripture, make fun of him because mm. he can't stand to be mocked. Right. Uh, conspiracists tend to be the same way. Like if you make fun of them online, you like better hang on tight. <laughs> and, and so, uh, I think the difference, a couple of differences I see with like the Tea Party is that for one thing, the John Birch Society was a actual like organized society with leadership and like stated goals. Yeah. Where the Tea Party, there was no single unified Tea Party that 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 became a like catch-all term for a wide variety of conservative or libertarian or right-ish leaning populist groups yeah you know with a wide variety of concerns whether it was you know you know the war on terror or um people in favor of the patriot act or people against the patriot act i mean it, it did not speak with a single voice the way the john birch society did um and again the the another difference is that tea partiers did not care about they didn't care about your respectability Right. You know, they, they, as, as most populist movements go, that striving for respectability is actually questionable, mm. you know, cause, uh, one thing, um, is to bring national review back into it again. Um, I listened to David French's podcast, uh, and he, he writes for them and he's, I think really, really thoughtful. Um, but he, he apparently gets a lot of flack from populist Trumper types, uh, for, and the 
accusation they keep bringing against him that he's mentioned several times on his podcast is that they accuse everybody who works for like establishment conservative groups like National Review of just wanting to be able to go to Manhattan cocktail parties. Yeah. Which is, you know, this this kind of reverse classist kind of accusation that all you want is that respectability. And of course, that is that is absolutely what the John Birch Society wanted, right? They wanted that respectability. And for populists, being respectable is kind of a, a badge that you've sold out. Yeah. Right. I, I think um I th- I think uh because I've just taught ancient Greece, uh I think modern day populist Trump types and maybe Tea Party types, I think the person they would most like from Greek philosophy would be Diogenes, right? Who wanted to call everything into question especially your respectability, like go live in a tub with the dogs as long as you're right. And you're, you know, wearing your MAGA hat. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Jay, what would you throw in there? Well, you, you touched on some of the ones that I, some of the ideas I would have, I've always had mixed feelings about the tea party. Mm -hmm. Um, I have some friends and acquaintances that would have described themselves as tea party. Yeah. Same, same here. I I want to point out. (laughs) And they're not in any way, shape or form like to the extreme right they were actually concerned more about you know what the original thing was 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 taxes things like that as far as the guys who you know they wore the tricorn hats and things like that you know to me they were a little more than weekend reenactors (laughs) you know and you know we did we did have a small tea party group here in eastern north carolina where i was and again it was more about attacking establishment than anything else like you know people have been in for 20 30 years they haven't changed anything in 20 or 30 years so it's time to vote them out yeah that kind of thing and then either once they were voted out or now they've decided to retire it's kind of died down at least in my area um i will say that the more vocal tea party folks that i'm aware of ended up being the most vocal trump supporters yeah i'm not sure if there's a connection there or not or if that's just anecdotal well i when jordan was talking about respectability um like that made me think so i kind of assert that the mainstream media i know that's already i'm sounding like a conspiracy (laughs) theorist when i use that term but you know sort of the the elite uh, oriented media of the coasts right that dominate television and print and in america um all of it i mean slate all the way to new york times to la times whatever you know all of it they for a while have i think overemphasized the maga part of trump's support right um and and he didn't win because of those folks or because of the, no. the the white working class or whatever, whatever you want to call the the unrespectable types. Right. He didn't win because of the QAnons out there, the QAnon heads. Um, he won because of the respectable types, the, the folks who live in mm-hmm. the suburbs. Um, who want to, you know, keep bigger parts of their paychecks essentially. And so they're going to vote for whatever Republican, um, was out there for that reason, uh, because of the right. tax cuts. And so th- there was, uh, I-, I feel like the Bircher Society as its original form was of res- seeking respectability is represented mm-hmm. in the, the suburban Trump voter that actually caused him to win. Um, but it also, because of its weird conspiratorial nature as well, that got it kicked out of respectability politics, um, 
has a, a, a representative in the QAnon um, MAGA uh, hat portion of Trump's electorate as well. And, and so it's a really a weird, complicated um, mm-hmm. matrix that, that that if you're looking for a sort of a hereditary, you know, genetic, um, inher- you know, where this uh, where Trump's support comes from, um, I think it's from both ends kind of. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I should say that, you know, my dichotomy that I proposed between the respectable and I, I guess we could, we have a word for it now, the deplorables. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The you know the dichotomy I kind of structured my my thoughts on is is too neat right it's got it's got to be more complicated than that because I you know one of the things populism does that I don't think gets enough attention is that it it does kind of it it tends to be most visible as a movement of the kind of lower class ignorant people it's easy to make fun of yeah. Uh, you know, that get interviewed on Jay Leno, you know, not knowing what the planets are in the solar system and stuff like that. Sure. But uh, it, it populists tend to emphasize the people as opposed to race or class or whatever. Although, it, you know, all those issues are tangled up in it. So, I mean, I, I know plenty of people who would qualify as, you know, middle or even, you know, lower upper class, whatever, who would definitely subscribe to populist politics, not because of any kind of class consciousness or class bias, but because that's what they think would be the best for the greatest number of people. And that's what, that's what they care about. Like, yeah, because I don't know. Does that make any kind of sense? Because Um, of an idealist uh, version of the founding of America being this sort of utopian moment and that we've drifted from. And uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, I get that. Jay, you were going to say something, Jay. Yes. Oh, I was. I thought. Thoughts gone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, obviously all these issues are going to be more complicated than we have time to get at in a, in a you know, an hour long podcast. But I, I do think it's just a fascinating conversation to have. And, and there's a version of this going on in the left. And well, I don't say the left. I mean, obviously there probably are in the left, but in liberals as well. I like to make a clear distinction between liberalism and the left. Okay. And so, um, the left though is having, uh, an influence on democratic liberal politics right now in the primary season, um, with, um, Ocasio-Cortez and like sort of doing this kind of thing from a sort of DSA democratic socialist of America, um, approach to challenging, the the bums who haven't done anything as jay said <laughs> you know what i'm saying the uh, the folks who have been in there for 20 years and haven't done anything um and cynthia nixon's recent kind of failed bid to uh to um oust andrew cuomo the deplorable andrew cuomo uh from uh <laughs> from uh the governorship in uh in new york still has like a resounding effect down the ticket like the folks who came out to support her actually changed a lot of the um the state legislature um makeup now and so it's a it's a really interesting moment in which there's a version of this kind of populism from the left I, it doesn't seem to me to equate all that neatly with um, John Birch style politics, because as I said with Derek Varn on a previous episode, I feel like conspiracy theory works better on the right than it does on the left. I mean, there's certainly left conspiracies, <laughs> but I mean, leftists, at least, especially uh, maybe with liberalism for sure. Right. But um, but with leftists, they're always they don't really think a person's in charge is a system that we need to change. So it's not given to conspiratorial thought about bad actors necessarily. It's a systemic critique. Um, now, with liberals, that's a different story, <laughs> as we've seen with, you know, everything in since 2016. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that there's. Um, but on the left, I think it works slightly differently. Um, 
So I don't know. Differently, but not less, I would say. I mean, I, I think conspiracism is equal opportunity across the board. It's just you're, you're going to focus on different external enemies, whether mm-hmm. it's a system or some kind of nefarious group of people meeting in a smoky room, you know, like that, like th- they eventually pan out into the same, the same kind of paranoid thinking. Yeah. Well, and I've, if you follow lefty Twitter, um, like <laughs> there are so many subgroups that hate each other and are so terrible to each other. Uh, yeah. that actually does. I mean, they're is just as like, you know, deplorable <laughs> if you will. Uh, you're right about that for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, any other thoughts on this? We're nearing the hour here. Um, and I know you guys have to evade some rain. <laughs> on its way. Um, It's it's brutally hot and sunny outside right now, but I know that storm is closing in. Yeah. Uh, Jay, why don't you go ahead? I feel like I've spent 45 of our last 60 minutes talking. For for final thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just to tie up what we were just talking about, how things work on the left, there comes a point that you go so far left that the bogeyman becomes who it's not necessarily that they're fighting against someone, but they're arguing to see who can be the most progressive. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not the right brand of progressive, then you're the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this totalizing way of talking about people in that way too. Yeah. You're totally right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Sorry. I don't have any, anything profound to say. Yeah. Um, But uh, Jordan, do you, have uh, you brought <laughs> well. This, this is a whole another topic, and we we covered it a little bit with the Alex Jones discussion too. But you kind of brought in Twitter a second ago, and I mean, I, I I alluded to this, I think at the beginning, talking about Buckley's role in again what we now call gatekeeping. But when you get groups like the Birchers, so so I think after that controversy in the '60s, they didn't go away. I think they might have shrunk in membership. I really honestly don't know. They did, yeah. But I, I think, did. yeah. I, I think they certainly lost um, – I, I think they mostly became irrelevant because the way they talk now you know, online and where I've seen them and, and seen them in interviews is, is very much a crank who's just happy to be being listened to every once in a while, Yeah. Um, at which, which I think is different from a lot of the kind of populist paranoia you get on both sides of the aisle nowadays, um, especially because – let me put it this way. If the Buckley versus Welch thing had happened now, I think the outcome would have been considerably different because there are so many other places to go. Yeah. Right. It, it wasn't that, okay, conservative magazines are not going to really post or post goodness. Uh, that's the influence of media now, right? <laughs> conservative magazines are no longer going to publish or entertain your particular brand of ideas, right? We're not going to run your articles on fluoride. We're not going to allow you to hijack important discussions by claiming that Ike is a commie. Yeah. Um, nowadays it would be like, you know, okay, well screw you. I'll rant at you on Twitter and I'll continue to get my words out. You know, we will still get TV interviews on the 10 different networks that are available to us. If if not that many, we'll continue to proliferate on Twitter. We'll continue to, you know, have our YouTube channels and our Instagram accounts and we'll, Lord, we could probably even have anti-communist Snapchat, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, I, th- I think the outcome would be considerably different. For so, the Birch Society, I think, just had the misfortune of having this kind of throwdown at the wrong time in history. Um, if if it had been now, I think, kind of like you've seen with Jones's followers rallying to him, uh, the movement of like Goldwater and Buckley and Kirk and other conservative leaders to 
give Welch the ouster would have actually galvanized that support. And of course they could have just gone off on their own. I don't know. That's, that's a big historical what if, and I don't usually entertain those, but, but I think, I think a, the variety of media that are available and that, that democratization of media that's occurred since then and would like have really changed sort of the dynamic of paranoid, you know, paranoid political discourse. I would shudder to think what a Birch TV would look like. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I will say, I, 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 I am an anti-communist, but I, you know, the, the Birchers are detached from reality. Um, but having browsed around current Bircher stuff, it's almost quaint, you know, especially when you compare it to the alt right. I mean, he- hearing someone give this kind of like unhinged diatribe about you know the UN trying to take away our sovereignty is om- it it has paradoxically almost become respectable compared to the kind of like <laughs> crazy racist like paranoid stuff that you get from the alt right. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of a weird bookend to the Birch story, I think. Yeah, that's true. It's almost nostalgic. Uh, and yeah. It's like this it's conspiracy nostalgia. It's Hallmark conspiracy, right? Uh, if you will. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think when you were saying like, what would it look like today? I mean, I think it would look a lot like the QAnon people. I mean, I, I think Probably, that yeah. they, uh, that's a really good, I think, model for what's going on. They have a, a simple, it's different and the enemy is technically different, but effectively the same, right? The enemy is just sort of anti-true Americanism, right? And so yeah. in, in the fifties, that's communism explicitly. Um, now it's communism, maybe part of it, but it's, uh, it's also, um, the deep state actors that are trying to take away the second, globalists. Yeah. The, the globalists, uh, second amendment, uh, people and all that kind of thing, right. A- anti-second amendment people, uh, and, and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I think that we kind of have a model for what Birch would have been today. Um, if you will. And again, based on a, a postmodern, I mean, a figurehead who we, Probably comes from a TV show, one of two TV, <laughs> two TV characters, right? Um, uh, the, the sort of, uh, like postmodern, like revisionist, uh, historical figurehead that does, didn't really actually exist, but we're going to base an entire ideology off of him anyway. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. Those of you who, um, um, I want to learn more. There's lots to read about the Birch Society. Um, mm-hmm. I'll try and find some stuff to put into the links. I did run across an article from a couple of years ago by Jeet here in uh, the New Republic, um, who makes an argument about that style of um, um, of politics, the, the conspiratorial. It's it's an update, if you will, in many ways of Hofstadter's uh, the paranoid style of American politics, which I'll also try and uh, put a link to uh, on the uh, on the on the show notes for this at sectarianreviewpodcast.com. But uh, Jeet Hears article basically makes a similar uh, makes an argument that the paranoid conspiratorial mindset of this fringe move fringe conservative movement of the fifties has become rather mainstreamed in the general conservative movement of today. Right. And um, I think that that's an interesting um, argument. He wrote that uh, some a couple years ago, but I would extend that argument and loop liberals up in it as well. Right now, the, there's a, there's a conspiratorial approach to liberal politics right now that surrounds, you know, Russia and impeachment and P tapes and all kind. you know what I'm saying? You know, and, and all sorts of things that are going disgusting places. So I better cut this in short, but, um, but yeah, I think that it, it's always good to keep an eye on, on conspiracy theories here. So, um, 
Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, you guys were really troopers for, <laughs> for showing up for this one. Uh, I really am glad we got to do it. I'm really glad to talk to you both and see you both on Skype here uh, to know that you're both safe and, uh, and, and remain so. I don't know, are they selling snorkels or something uh, in case you get uh, too much water in Greenville? I don't know. But, um, yeah, stay safe. And, and Jay, I, I seriously hope that your, uh, your property and everything's okay back home when you get there. Oh. As of recording, everything's okay. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, yeah, um, well, guys, everybody pray for the uh, for the Eldreds uh, down in California or uh, North Carolina, and uh, thanks for listening to the Sectarian Review podcast. Um, have a great day, everybody. Bye.